Today, we're talking to me, Chef Kibby, about how to build trust, safety, and a deeper sense of connection with our foster and adoptive kiddos by embracing the connecting power of the kitchen. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Kat, and I'm here with Jack, and today we have a very special guest. This is Chef Kibby, who has made great use of his skills and fostering, and we can't wait to learn more from him today. So Chef Kibby, let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? Favorite drink at Starbucks. It's actually been a long time since I've been to Starbucks. You know, I'm, I'm a big supporter of our local little coffee shops and things like that. But if I were to choose, I would say something in the raspberry mocha, the, the raspberry dark chocolate mocha would be would be my jam. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. I haven't thought about raspberry mocha. What do you get at like the local places? Yeah. If you're at a local coffee shop, what are you ordering? Um, something similar to that. But I know Starbucks has their own kind of vernacular. You know, you have to use the right words. Otherwise, they look at you funny. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, the razzmatazz, I think, used to be a used to be a thing there. I'm not sure if it still is, but I, I remember having that not to be confused with the adult beverage, which is something completely different altogether. But uh, but yeah, the raspberry coffee or a raspberry uh, mocha. Um, that's that's what I like to roll with. Can you tell me? how long you have been a foster parent and what that looks like in your home. Well, I've, my wife and I got licensed, I believe it was about nine years ago when we began this crazy journey that we've been on. And what that looks like on a daily basis, well, it depends on the day, uh, sometimes depends on the hour, uh, as many of your audience could probably um, empathize with that. Over the years, we've had, I believe, a dozen or so children come through our doors. We have had the, the great fortune and blessing to be able to adopt out of foster care and and it's it's been a an up and down road. It's definitely one of those things that my wife and I feel like we were called by God to to be on this journey, not fully realizing until we were you know years into it the kind of impact it was going to have on our lives, both to the positive and also to the the challenging, which I'm sure we'll get into as we continue our talk. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely attest to that. I don't I think it's just one of those things that you don't really understand until you're doing it. And that's also why we've talked about why having a great foster parent community is so important as a foster parent, because you don't really get it until you're doing it. And you don't really understand the fullness that it is in your life, both very positive and both very challenging. So true. There's like nothing black and white about foster care. And one of the, the topics, I mean, since you since you brought that up, I think it is important. And, I, and that's why I love your show. And I love the conversations that you're having with people is to kind of dig into these issues for people who are just starting their foster journey or perhaps looking to begin a foster journey to kind of hit on those tough issues that other people maybe don't feel as comfortable addressing and doing so in a way that takes away some of that gray area and makes things a little bit more black and white as much as you possibly can so that people can make the best decisions for them and for their families. And to that end, I think there are some some huge challenges uh, for for families going into foster parenting that you know we were not prepared for. And it wasn't until years of going through it that we fully realized 
what it was that we were dealing with. And honestly, I've only come to really um, understand and appreciate it over the last couple of years. And that came about as as a result of the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic, uh, up until about March of 2020, I had a catering business. We had a family catering business that was really doing well. And we were doing uh, cooking classes on the side as well, doing hands-on kitchen sessions. And all of that came to a screeching halt, March of 2020, when COVID happened. One of the things that went out the door was eating together in large groups. And that was my business. And so that went away. And because of that, not only was I forced into this kind of a um, self-esteem issue because I attached having this business to kind of justify being able to call myself Chef Kibby, you know, and that was kind of taken from me. And so I kind of retreated to my home kitchen where it was a place where I could control you know, I felt a little bit more in control in this out of control environment that I was living. But it also brought me face to face with the issues that we were having as foster and adoptive parents, which for the longest time, I didn't know what to do with. Um, and so I, I kind of just hoped and prayed that someone else or something would change and that things would just get better, you know, kind of in a, in a way, put that off on my wife, on others in our family to kind of handle this and just kind of escape to work. I could no longer make that escape any longer. And that's when I began to, to take it upon myself to finally start playing some sort of a role in healing our family and healing the relationship that I wanted to have with my children. And that's when I began to uh, become acquainted with what has really become so central to, to my being and to everything that I'm doing and everything I'm creating in understanding trauma and understanding trauma informed care, understanding what um, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs have done for any child who is in the foster care system. And having that mindset, learning about things like TBRI, trust-based relational intervention, which has just been a tremendous game changer for our family. And I recommend to anyone who is in foster care or, or considering it. But then internalizing that while at the same time seeing the interactions that I could have with my children through the kitchen it, it was just kind of this lightning bulb, light bulb moment, lightning rod moment, however you want to call it. I'm stumbling over my words that I was able to put the two together and realize that trauma is something that has disrupted my child's ability to accept my love and to feel the trust that I am trying to build into them. And that cooking, not just for my children, but with my children could be a way of communicating that love and that trust and acceptance in a way that my words just couldn't. And that is the impetus behind my cooking is connecting program behind my podcast, behind everything I'm trying to do to serve this community that you also are trying to serve. I love that. And I, I love that you found a tool to do that because I think so many people are trying to find tools to connect with their kids, knowing that trauma has created a separation between them. Yeah. And that's, it goes back to like, how do you heal from that trauma? It's the positive childhood experiences mm -hmm. that help you heal from the adverse childhood experiences and, and doing that in relationship is the best, best way to right. do that. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're taking like the two most vital ways to heal from trauma and putting them together and using your skill as a chef to do that. I think that's really neat. It is that you're building resiliency when you cook with your kids and you're creating these positive moments with them and they are building resiliency every day. So that's really cool. Can we rewind a little bit? And can you tell us about your first experiences ever with foster care so we can kind of get acquainted with how you got to where you are? Oh, I'm laughing already because our our first experience in foster care uh, very shortly after we were were licensed. I remember I'll never forget. I was actually on the line at in the restaurant where I was the executive chef, I was running the kitchen line. It was a busy Friday night and I got the call from my wife and she told me that we had our first placement and it was a sibling set 
of three boys under six. That's something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing fully prepares for you for that. I think there are probably foster parents out there that have been doing for, for 10, 15 years who would probably feel a little bit overwhelmed by a situation like that. But we were newcomers. We didn't know uh, any better. I mean, we'd even set aside that we were hoping for one to two. And so when we got the call for, for three, uh, we, we still said yes. It's so hard. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure everyone in the audience has experienced this too. It is, it is so hard to say no when someone is asking you to take in a child or two or, or three or four or four or more. And I know that there's been stories of, of similar uh, situations and so we went and we had one we had one biological at the time as well. So we went from one to four overnight and it it is one of the hardest things we've ever done. And equally as difficult was the time when we finally said that we couldn't do it any longer and we had to disrupt the placement. So that there was a lot of grief, a lot of emotional a lot of guilt in that, a lot of questioning of whether or not we were fully cut out for this. Again, not fully realizing just the 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 depth of trauma that that we were experiencing in these three little tykes. Uh, again, not being very trauma informed even at that point. It was it was hard and we held on to that 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 guilt and that secondary trauma that often comes as being a foster or adoptive parent for for a while. And it was a while before we um, were at a point where we could accept other placements. We did some respite care for a while to kind of get us back into the swing of things, which I highly recommend respite care. I think respite care is amazing. And in fact, in hindsight, I wish that maybe our agency or maybe more agencies, I don't know if anybody does this, would either require or even recommend that new foster parents begin by doing respites just to kind of get acquainted with everything that, that comes with foster parenting. Maybe we'd have less turnover that way. I don't know. But but that was my experience. You know, I think that uh, getting your feet wet as a respite giver um, and you know what? We need more people that can offer respite mm -hmm. because I, you know, I went on vacation recently and I plan to bring all of my kids with me. But, at, you know, at the last minute, my husband wasn't able to get away from work and I wasn't able to bring eight kids to a water park by myself when six of them were under the age of five. So I just didn't want anybody to drown and trying to find respite, you know, within a couple of weeks was not, I mean, it was, it was not an easy process. I basically, you know, asked everybody that I knew until I finally found somebody and they, and the, the siblings had to be separated, which is unfortunate. That's hard. So, you know, the other nice thing about respite is sometimes there's a good match that's made. That's like, true. Sometimes a really good match. Like I've seen some kids that find their forever home from a respite. That's so really nice for everybody. That happened with us. One of the children that we had respited uh, eventually um, was um, was displaced from the the foster family that 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 they had been with and ended up um, we had the opportunity to, to to take them and ended up adopting. So. So, yeah, that is one of the experiences that we've had as well. So, yeah, you just never know. Uh, but to understand what what foster parenting entails you know tra training can only do so much especially if training you know again this go changes from agency to agency and from state to state kind of the the focus of the training whether it's on just managing behaviors and following rules versus understanding the needs behind the behaviors and being able to to take proactive steps to to empower them and to create connection with these kiddos to put them in a place of safety and self-regulation where they can begin to to see some behavioral changes and um, 
to accept the the love and the compassionate care that you're offering to them because you know behavioral management just doesn't work the same because there's so much need like you were talking about the different types of trauma that these children have gone through expresses themselves in different ways and sometimes it's up to us to kind of be detectives in that and to have some tools in our arsenal that we can use to address the needs behind the behavior so that they're at a at a point where they're calm and relaxed and not experiencing that chronic anxiety that those of us who have natural um attachments to our primary caregivers who grew up without those kind of experiences don't necessarily that doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. And I know there were many years where I kind of inadvertently blamed my children for their behaviors. And not only is that not productive and healthy, it's just not good parenting. And I'm so thankful that not only have I you know, learned from my mistakes, but I now have an opportunity to share those insights with other current and potential foster and adoptive parents. And again, to have a new language through this shared act of cooking and eating with our children to be able to put them into that place where they can be more accepting and more regulated. I mean, no matter whether they experienced um, food insecurities or not, that is a common um, that is a common expression of any kind of trauma because it goes back to this this feeling of I'm not safe and and feeling unsafe means I don't know when the next meal is going to come. And so to use the kitchen to empower them and to give them some agency in the the provision of this most basic need, um, I have seen and have, have heard from others that this could um, impact children that have been affected by all sorts of different types of trauma, whether it's food related or not. I love that. And, you know, the other thing I like about it is that even like typical kids seek out control in their environment when life gets a little out of control, like like school starts and they're adjusting or, you know, we've grandma's been here for a week and life seems out of control and I've been staying up too late. They seek out control in various ways and food is one of them. Food's actually probably the most common. And so I think that's fantastic. Can we talk a little bit about um, like just to get a good idea of like, um, you know, how long you've been foster parenting, what made you decide to foster parent, how many placements you've had. I had no experience with fostering in, in my life. This was really a passion that God had put on my wife through her experiences growing up. That was a conversation that she and I had during our engagement period that she had it on her heart that she wanted to adopt. Um, at that time, it wasn't about fostering. It was it was more about adoption. And I was I was on board. I, I had no objections to it. Now, when a few fast forward a few years and we got to that period in our family where we were ready to start embracing the idea of adoption and to make that a part of our family, we realized that we were not in a financial situation to do any sort of straight forward, you know, uh, traditional adoption, whatever terminology you want to use there. And so not necessarily as a way of adopting, but to at least begin to allow us the opportunity to invite other children into our home, uh, we became licensed foster parents. And I'm trying to, I think I had mentioned earlier over the years we had had about, I think we've had uh, at least 12 uh, placements over that period of time. Chef Kibby, can you tell us what was it that made you decide to train in culinary arts? It certainly wasn't something that was always in my mind. I mean, growing up in small town, St. Mary's, Ohio, um, I I wasn't really exposed to a lot of food and cooking growing up. My parents were really weren't that big into to food. They weren't considered foodies. Um, they, they cooked on a regular basis, um, but it wasn't like being a chef was something that the guidance counselor ever talked about with me in high school. It wasn't really until I had had a couple of different experiences that kind of reshaped things. I went to Japan when I was about 16 years old on a 10 day sister cities exchange. And so that definitely took me out of my small town Midwest experience to a completely different culture and a different 
food culture as well, which in hindsight was kind of weird because I was actually kind of a picky eater. So to leave my comfort zone and to go to a completely different food culture, I'm not sure what was going through my mind at the time, but I'm grateful for it. Uh, the second thing that happened a couple years later was I moved from the small town and moved to the big city of Columbus, Ohio, which for people who are not familiar with Columbus, Ohio, it is actually a very diverse city and one of the most diverse populations in the Midwest, which is why it's often a testing ground for marketing of different products before they go nationwide. And I was exposed to such a wide variety of not only just cultures and ethnicities, but food cultures as well. I mean, traditional um, Middle Eastern and Greek and Italian and Ethiopian and Korean and uh, Lebanese. I mean, you name it. And it was represented in a restaurant in Columbus. And so when I came to to the Ohio State University and was eating for my own and, and cooking for my own for the first time, um, my eyes were opened. And I had also been working in food service as, as a day job throughout school. And after college, I went into mortgage sales for a year and absolutely hated it. Mortgage sales at that particular time, especially the type of mortgages they were trying to get me to sell, it just as it wasn't happening. And so I fell back into food service and just never left and ended up going back to school for my certification as a chef. And I'm now teaching for that college where I graduated from 10 years ago. Oh, that's awesome. Can you tell us about the evolution, like where you realized that there was a connection between cooking, trauma and healing and turning that into a way to connect with your kids and also sharing that with others through social media and your podcast? I can point to a specific moment, a specific instance in the kitchen. And I'm so fortunate and so blessed that I even have a picture of it that I have shared on social media. Um, not too many of us get to have like a photographic memory of that moment when their life was changed. And I'm so grateful that I have it. And it all stems around my daughter coming to me while I was doing dinner prep and asking me an absolutely ridiculous question. She came to me and asked me if she could chop up my vegetable scraps. And I'm like, what? You want to chop up my scraps? I mean, this we compost. We have chickens out in the yard that we you know, we take our vegetable scraps and we, we throw it out to the chicken so they can eat it. And so when she asked me that question, there were a number of different ways that I could say no. To that request. Like, this is a waste of time. Uh, I need, I need to focus on what I'm doing. Um, why don't you, you know, go watch TV? Um, we're just going to be giving it to the chickens anyway. So it's just kind of not all that useful. But in that moment, you know, God spoke into me with the work that he had been doing in my life and in my heart. And then the, in the, the, uh, the education that I have been getting in, in trauma informed care and the, the need for connection. And in that moment, I, I said, yes, I said, absolutely. Let's get you an apron. We'll get you a cutting board. We'll get you a knife appropriate for her level of skill. And I allowed her to chop up these vegetable scraps. And it was in that moment that I saw so much that she was teaching me about myself and about the agency that I have in our relationship. And then it wasn't necessarily about the food. It wasn't because, I mean, she wasn't helping me with dinner by any means. I mean, she was with me in the kitchen, but she wasn't doing anything productive that was going to help to get dinner on the table anytime soon. It was about the modeling of, of how I was holding myself at the cutting board, how I was holding my knife and the food using my pencil grip and bear claw that I teach everybody in my knife skills courses and the, the act of creation of taking something and making something else from it. And it was the, the time of quality time with my daughter and the conversations we had and just the fact of giving her a yes to something mattered to her. And 
it was in that moment that I really started to fully see the power of, of the kitchen. I'd always known that food brings people together. And I've always believed that teaching kids about food and cooking is important as a, as a, as an independent life skill, but to use it as a language to speak to my child. Yes. I love you. Yes. I want you in my life. Yes. I think that you are capable of doing things. Yes. I want to spend time with you. Yes. You are safe here. I mean, there's a reason why I'm so passionate about it now and why I want to empower so many people to have those same experiences. And one of the things I love about that story, and maybe you've already picked up on this, is that there was nothing fancy or, you know, culinary arts about it. I didn't really teach her that much with regards to food and and cooking. It doesn't have to be. I've had a child scrub the potatoes and they will claim that they helped made supper and they'll they'll take credit for all of it. That's the power that anyone can have. You don't have to be a chef. You don't have to be a culinary instructor. You don't have to be a social media influencer in order to take advantage of this power that each and every one of us have if we have a kitchen and if we have something in the fridge that we can do with it. Um, let me ask you a question real quick, um, because, you know, you've had placements in your home that you've seen how cooking can transform them, uh, working out their trauma, building relationship with you. Can you tell us at all a little specifically about how this has impacted a placement in your home? Well, um, the, the biggest impact that it has had has been with, um, the, the child that we had adopted because again, for the longest time, I couldn't understand why, even though I was being consistent with, with discipline and with rules and with expectations that none of those were being well received or met and there just never seemed to be any progress. And I thought that the problem was with them. And really the whole time the problem was with me and not seeing that when, when this child was having behaviors that we might think are maladaptive or dysregulated, it's not because anything I was doing was necessarily wrong or, or inappropriate. It was because there were needs behind those behaviors that that child didn't have the ability to vocalize. And it was up to me to finally come to the point where I could realize what was going on behind the scenes to to understand a little bit more of the, the interpersonal neurobiology that was going on in her brain, the understanding flight and fight and freeze and all of these things that uh, that we see on a regular basis as, as kind of traumas and or as um, as tantrums and meltdowns and begin to. Uh, see the needs behind those behaviors and change the way I was addressing those behaviors. And then to use those experiences in the kitchen to kind of lay a foundation of, of I am a safe person and that I see you, I recognize you, I see the needs that, that you have. And I, I want to put you into that place of safety and comfort and calm and to experience the regulation that I have and to internalize it. And that has made such a huge difference in our relationship. And I just for years, I just felt like I wasn't cut out for this and that things were always going to be the way they were. And it wasn't until I saw the power that I had and in this this language of of cooking and eating together to begin to not only change her mindset about me, but to change my mindset around her. That's so nice because I think it's so nice just two people in general being able to share something with one another. But also it's so rare for I mean, just kids in general, or even adults to have something that they feel like they're good at, you know, and um, and that's self-worth to feel like I did something. I'm good at it. I completed it. Look at my completed task. That's where we get self-worth from. And it's from that that we can grow and we, we have a full tank and we can feel like we're good at other things, too. And and, you know, you can value the people around you by spending time with them and saying, I enjoy doing this and you can do it with me. You can be with me while I do this. So there's I feel like there's so many great um, 
great things we can do with the people that we love by by incorporating cooking with them. I think it's such a great idea. I feel like you've stumbled upon something that's so valuable. Yeah. And I've like I've found, especially with the like when I've had an, a placement of an older girl, that their favorite thing to do is help me cook something, whether it's something small like spaghetti or whether it's something a little more intense like eggplant rollatini. Like it's not just about I mean, they all you know, are eager to be the one that is with me in the kitchen, you know, touching certain tools that most of the time they're not like other kids wouldn't be allowed to touch, but also the pride they have when we put out that meal for the Mm -hmm. other kids. I've never really looked at it in the way that Chef Kibby is explaining until I found his Instagram. And um, even while we're talking now, I'm coming up with more thoughts in my head about how this could help various kids. I, you know, when you mentioned the food insecurities, I mean, really, all of my kids have food insecurities, but mm-hmm. especially one of them, um, you know, and he does love helping me in the kitchen. So maybe if I can give him more authority and more time doing that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe the food hoarding will slow down and, you know, maybe, maybe that's going to help him build confidence in other ways. So, you know, I am learning so much from him, from his Instagram account, from, you know, the conversation that we're having here right now. And, and to that end, you know, you've taken your experience with your placements, with, dealing with the pandemic of being home and making use of your skills in a completely different way. Now you've taken that outside of your family and you're sharing it with the world through um, a podcast, through your Instagram account. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other things that you're doing and how people can find your content so that they can use it to help their families as well? Absolutely. And before I do that, I just want to tip my hat to you because I've actually talked to other people in the foster care space and and people who specifically who have served young people who have aged out of the foster care system. And what they have told me is that very commonly, one of the things that a lot of foster um, caregivers have a hard time doing is trusting specifically older foster care placements in the kitchen. And, and what happens, what results from that is that children age out of the foster care system without having those experiences, without being trusted with these tools and implements and techniques in the kitchen. And so they are, are lacking in that ability to, to have that, that area of their life where they can regulate and provide for themselves. So I absolutely love what you were doing for your children. And, um, I just want to, to recognize and appreciate that, uh, for, for people who are listening to this program, as we are recording this, I'm going through a bit of a transition in the way I'm presenting my content and the way I'm going to be providing resources to foster and adoptive uh, parents in the near future and really taking the imp- the the um, the insights that I'm getting from being on podcasts like yours, that there is something really to this that other people need to learn about of creating more of a an organized program, like a training course around this idea, which I call cooking is connecting. And so this cooking is connecting method. I've already integrated into a 20 day email challenge that your listeners can take part in. I'm sure we can find a way of, of putting that link in the show notes. Hint, hint, (laughs) but the, the 20 day challenge is based on a framework by a search Institute called the developmental relationships framework. And in that their research showed that there are five areas of developmental assets that young people need. And in those five areas are 20 activities that or or actions that we as caregivers need to provide to our children to give them those developmental assets to grow up resilient and of strong mental health. And when I saw that for the first time, I saw that all 20 of those activities could be done through the shared act of cooking and eating with our children. And so I've taken each of those actions and I'm helping my listeners and my followers and my community to understand how they can implement this research-based practice in child development and implement it through the shared act of cooking and eating together. That has been 
20 episodes of the Cooking with Kibby podcast. That is the 20 day cooking is connecting challenge. And that will be one part of what I am developing right now as the cooking is connecting program, which will be a training program to help parents and those who assist parents, you know, those in the mental health space, um, consultants and therapists and, you know, small group leaders, uh, agencies, whatever the case may be. To, to see what it means to connect with our children, to see what agency we have to connect with our children, and then how to use this innate trust that is built in the kitchen to, to create a, a, an implementation strategy that any family, no matter how often they cook and no matter how experienced they are in the kitchen, to use this connecting power of cooking and eating with our children to help them to, to move past the, the effects of trauma and to build deeper connections. And so that's what the future holds for me as I fully embrace this, this experience that I've had and what it can be for other people. Let me just ask you one quick thing, um, just because I'm curious. What is your absolute favorite thing to cook? I would say risotto. And the reason why I like risotto is because it's, yeah, it's it seems fancy. It's this fancy Italian rice dish, but I like the flexibility of it. There's a lot of different things you can do with it. I appreciate the work and the effort that goes into it in that when it's made right, there's kind of layers of flavor that that built into it. And also there's an emotional attachment to it because risotto was something that my wife made for me when we were still dating. And it's one of those food memories that she and I have when we first, when we were first falling in love with each other. When you were building a connection. When you were building a connection. Yes. And that's one of the amazing (laughs) things about food that people sometimes take for granted is that while we can look at pictures and, you know, we have our, our Facebook memories that pop up on our feed every now and then and we kind of relive that moment. But with food, you can actually kind of physically relive a moment in time. And so when I remake that risotto that she and I had, you know, 17 years ago, it's like you're experiencing it all over again. And so to be able to give those kind of experiences to my children now and to also use it as a vehicle to share share things that happened in my life before they were around, you know, to make that dish and to share what meaning it had to me and my wife or to make the kind of food that my wife and her and her parents had when they were living in a fishing village on the northern coast of Spain and the conversations that come about as a part of those meals. It's it's just so powerful. I could just go on and on. <laughs> is there is there something that is um, that you would recommend as a great thing to uh, a great recipe to cook with a kid that you're trying to connect with? What's like your go to? Our go to is granola. I love granola. It is healthy, especially when you're making it from home. Anything that you make on your own, you allow yourself to have more control over what's going into it. And so, I mean, you can buy granola. It's it's way too expensive, if you ask me. Uh, but you can make your own with a few very simple ingredients. And it allows for a lot of opportunities for my children to, to take part. Uh, spreading out the oats on the sheet trays before we toast them. Uh, mixing the liquid ingredients. Mixing the dry ingredients stirring everything together. There's no sharp knives involved. So that's that's always a good thing as well. And it's gotten to the point where I can just tell them that we're going to make granola. And the one or two of them, three of them, however many are helping me, they'll they'll scatter around the house and they'll gather this ingredient and that ingredient and this tray and they'll bring it all to the kitchen and bring it together like they know the routine. And I just I love that. I love the connection that they get with it. And at the end, you have something sweet and crunchy and delicious that's full of soluble and insoluble fiber that you can throw in your breakfast bowl for cereal or you can put on top of your ice cream or frozen yogurt. You can crunch it over top of your pancakes or waffles. I mean, there's so many different things you can do with it. It's very versatile. And we go through a lot of it in our house. 
I think I'm going to do that. Uh, that's going to be my goal before the school year starts in a couple of weeks is to make granola with each one of my kids. That's a great idea. Uh, can you give me one word that you think people would use to describe foster parents? The first thing that comes to my mind is brave because they're there's a lot of people that that look at foster parents on the outside looking in and saying, wow, I could never do that. And honestly, if I had known the things that I had known before I started, I probably would have said the same. <laughs> um, again, being a very novice to, to the idea of foster parenting going into it, I think was was very fortunate because I think there are some aspects of it that kind of scare people away. And I think that has to do with just the lack of information historically that's been out there about interpersonal neurobiology, about brain chemistry, about trauma. And now we're in a different place where we're starting to see agencies. We're starting to see states that are really making a strong, concentrated effort to make sure that people know why foster parenting is is difficult. And the majority of that is from connection or a lack thereof that we take connection as something for granted, that if we take someone in and we give them a bed and if we feed them, that the connection is just going to naturally happen. And then when it doesn't, we feel there's something wrong with with them or with us. And it's learning that attune or that it's not possible or, or that it's not possible. Yeah. And so, yes, there is a sense of, of bravery in in kind of going into something, like kind of venturing into the unknown a little bit. But those who are successful at foster parenting, those who are able to to take multiple placements and are able to give safety to these children. I think the common thread between all of them is attunement, attunement to themselves, to their own emotional state and attunement to the child's emotional state, because it's in that attunement that connection is able to take place. I think it's, you know, more recently, too, that not just in the um, child welfare arena, but kind of everywhere, we're becoming more aware that this is something that we all need to look at. Like with Simone Biles withdrawing from the Olympics and people saying like, this is good. You need to be conscious of your mental health and you need to take care of yourself. And the Olympics is secondary to your mental health. I think even four years ago, you know, people probably would have encouraged her to white knuckle it through that. I think everywhere we're seeing more of a conscious effort for people to um, be more aware of their mental health and to be more proactive. And maybe even the pandemic helped people to realize that. But I think that you're right. And I think that um, being more conscious of um, how foster parents are doing and how uh, foster kids are doing their home in their home and, um, and, you know, not just giving them the necessities, but but checking in, you know, and seeing how they're doing and seeing how foster parents are doing and making sure that it, um, people aren't just surviving, but that they're, that they're being, you know, everybody's being a little more proactive these days, I think, which is, which is good. It's very good. Um, let me ask you, how do you see the role of foster parents in the child welfare realm, at least in your experience where you live? I say, and, and this I think this is probably common throughout where people's experiences are. I think overall, I think the most healthy way to see foster parents and foster caregiving is stewardship, uh, is stewardship of a child who is awaiting a plan of permanency, whether that plan of permanency is reunification or is PC and being made available for adoption, no matter what the outcome, the the role and the purpose behind foster care and foster caregiving is is stewardship of that child and providing them with safety and connection and support while you await uh, permanency. Now, there's a lot of other entanglements and and that come along with that as far as um the the role of reunification and 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 when it should happen and how long it can take place and a lot of other kind of uncomfortable conversations and i think those conversations are are a good thing to have and i think you also kind of alluded to it already just the mental health of the foster caregivers and how much secondary trauma we experience in 
the in the length that sometimes these placements can take and the kind of up and down and the uncertainty and the expectations that for for sometimes good reasons are given to us that don't always pan out the way we expect there's there's a lot of difficulty and a lot of trial that comes along with foster parenting and i think that's one of the great things about programs like yours is because not only does it give a voice to those of us who have been through it and have positive things to share, but it creates a community and it helps those of who are listening to this program understand that they're not alone in in the struggles that they've faced and the, the trials that they've been through, the the kind of things that we don't always feel comfortable sharing on Instagram and on social media to, to know that it's normal and it's natural and it's healthy to go through these experiences and that there are positive ways that we can work through them. Chef Kibby, what keeps you from burning out? Uh, part of my self-care is is my relationship with God and my prayer and being connected with a, a church family that is also very pro support for foster and adoptive families and even um, going even further in supporting families who have the potential of being involved in the foster care system. So um, having a family of faith is incredibly important. Um, cooking as well uh, is is a is an outlet for me it's something that i can control and something that i feel like i'm good at and so it's something that still gives me pride even though now that i've seen the connecting power of it it's no longer my primary motive in doing it but it is still a source of personal pride and satisfaction for me and then getting outdoors um, we've been very blessed to live on you know, about 12 acres of land out in the middle of the country to have a creek and a field and 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 land and and chickens and things where I can kind of get out there and breathe the air and watch the sunrise and watch the sunset. And as I see the fireflies begin to come out my back window, um, just kind of the connection to, to God's creation just gives me a, a sense that um that, that we're going to get through this. What are some of the biggest struggles that you see in foster care in your state? I guess the most personal experience that, that I could see, I mean, I can't speak for everyone in my state because I know every placement is different and every agency is different. Every case is different. Um, but the thing that I've experienced the most firsthand that I have found the most um, troubling is how long placements last and how long cases go without reaching a sense of permanency. And that's not healthy for the child. It's not healthy for the foster caregivers. And honestly, it's not healthy for, for the biological parents either. And there might be some people that disagree with that, but that's just where I'm coming from as far as my understanding of, of neurobiology and brain chemistry and knowing that the longer that a child is, is placed outside of that home, the more neurological connection that child is making with their caregivers and the more they're internalizing those caregivers as a part of themselves. And so when, when those cases last that long, it's just further decreasing that child's ability to, to heal and to, and to grow, even if the end is reunification or even if that end is, is permanent placement with their caregivers, there is trauma in the process. The length of time that these placements get, get drawn out is not healthy for anybody involved. And as much as we need to be very careful about the decisions we make in the courtroom, we also need to recognize and acknowledge that the time involved has a consequence as well, not just the decision that's made in the court. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, and I'm sure Kat could speak to this better than I can, but I do know that while a child is in limbo, while they're waiting for that permanency, there are continuing to have anxiety mm -hmm. and the anxiety is further traumatizing them. And the more trauma, especially the longevity of the mm -hmm. trauma creates brain damage mm -hmm. and, you know, literal brain damage from mm -hmm. the chemicals that are coursing through their body from the anxiety. Mm -hmm. And this is just, further, you know, 
making a bigger challenge for them to when they do have permanency to be able to attach properly, to have relationships in their life as they grow mm-hmm. up. Um, it really just makes everything more challenging. And while, you know, the system might be focused on, you know, trying to give the parent every last chance before everything is ended, you know, when a child is in care for four years, that's you're almost like a quarter of their life. A quarter of their childhood is, you know, is in experiencing crisis. that. It's, it's in crisis. And children have the right to permanency. They just do. It's just an unfair thing to do to kids. So I know that, you know, we've we've all got, you know, different situations in our homes. And, you know, the placements you've had have probably been very different from, you know, placements someone else has had. But what do you think from what your experience as a foster parent, what do you think the community can do to prevent more kids coming into care? Yes. And I think that there are agencies and organizations that are stepping up to play that role. And here locally, here in central Ohio, we have an organization here called uh, My Village Ministries. And uh, they are an organization. They are a a safe families style organization where it's a wraparound service for families who, uh, for for one reason or another, run the risk of having children being placed into foster care, whether it's because of job loss or um, unable to pay uh, bills, or it could be from medical issues or um, you know just other concerns that they have, where it could be avoidable. For that family to to be able to retain the the care of their children without being placed into foster care. Now, obviously, there are cases where there is neglect and abuse, where there should be a process where child welfare is is stepping up and providing safety and providing a safety opportunity for the families to to get the resources they need to to hopefully provide that child with with the the proper living environment, but there are many cases where those those placements can be avoided. And so I hope that there are more people out there that that see the need and step up like my village ministries here in central Ohio is doing. And I have seen that in other areas. I know that it's really big in, in Florida and Texas and I believe Georgia. There's you know states around the country where from a top down and also from a grassroots approach are seeing the needs of, of families that run the risk of being involved in the system where it is avoidable. And it's just a matter of providing some some supports um, and not necessarily even financial resources. A lot of time it's mentorship. Sometimes it's caregiving for, for children so that parents have time to work or to um, to work on their relationships. There's a lot of things that we can do, uh, even for, for those families who don't feel like they're in a place where they can can be foster or adoptive parents to still be a resource and a help to those families. Um, what are your goals to make positive change in your community? Well, there's only so much I could do. I mean, and there's so many things that I, I would love to, to change, but I think the the area that I can change the most is is what I'm doing right now. And that's sharing my experiences and sharing the biggest lesson that I've learned as a part of this. And that is that trauma is disruptive, but cooking is connecting. That is the heart and soul behind the the life transformation that I've been brought through over these last couple of years. And I fully believe and I know this from the people that you know, like you have responded to my voice in this space, that there are people out there that will connect with that message and will begin to see themselves and their families and their kitchens in a different way. What's well, a great message? I mean, I'm definitely going to um, do some cooking with my kids. That's for sure. <laughs> and if you ever any, have any cooking questions as well, I mean, you can always slide into my DMs on Instagram. I mean, I'm definitely going to. Chef Kibby, thanks so much for being with us yeah, today. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thanks for coming. I Thank appreciate you so it. much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.